We'll be in Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you and text will be up on the screen as well, I believe. Pray with me. Father, we ask for the help of your spirit in the preaching of your word and the reading of your word and the hearing of your word and the discernment and the application and the usefulness of your word. Lord, we are here to receive from you, for you to speak in and through the scriptures by your spirit to our hearts. And with that, change us, mold us, fashion us, Lord, more and more into the image of your son in a way that would honor and glorify you and the work of your grace in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. What is your vision of the church? Okay, what, what do you think your vision, your perception of the church, this church, a church, Christians gathered, the people of God? What's your vision? What, what do you say? A vision is sort of a... a a mental picture, something in your mind's eye that shows what it's supposed to be, what it's for, what it's, what it's about when you think about that and say, what, what, what is it that you see when you think about the church, God's people? What is the, the picture, the vision, the future, what you believe to be in your heart? It's supposed to be like this. It, to have a, a clear vision, that's what helps us inform the present. When we see where we're heading, what it's supposed to be, what, what God has laid out, it's, we are supposed to be corporately X. And when we see that, then today, this Sunday, this afternoon, next week, tomorrow begins to fill in the details how are we supposed to respond, act? What are we supposed to do? How do we participate with that vision in mind? Also, having that vision helps sustain us when it doesn't look like that, when it doesn't look like we're there, it doesn't look like we're even close, when the vision says this, but reality says something altogether different. The present-day experience come short, there's trials, there's setbacks, and, and it is that vision looking ahead that has the power and the ability to sustain us through those times. But when that vision is gone, when that vision is faded or forgotten, then, then the, the energy for the present duties, present actions, present responsibilities the energy for it just diminishes. And the, and the difficulties and the setbacks, they, they become too discouraging and lead us to lose heart, sometimes give up or at least resign ourselves to something far less. I believe my humble opinion is that one of the great weaknesses of Christianity, of the church in America, I'll speak for America, it might be broader than this, but it is an altogether too low a view, too low of an understanding of the church. Technically speaking, a weak and faulty ecclesiology, a weak and faulty theology of the church. Who is the church? What is the church? What is the church called to be? Now, I don't doubt that there are many reasons for this. False teaching, untrue shepherds leading churches, wolves devouring from within the church, an anti-Christ culture, discouraged Christians, and of course, a devil who aims to destroy all that God has set out to do. All these things, and we could, I'm sure, expand on the list, leads to experiences in the church that leave many people wanting nothing to do with organized religion. I'm sure you've heard that. Maybe some of you have made that statement. I like Jesus. 
Christianity, Jesus sounds okay, but I do not want to have anything to do with organized religion, seemingly unable to get over past hurts, past disappointments, no doubt a challenge. The result is stunted spiritual growth in the lives of many, many Christians, a lack of spiritual vitality in too many local churches, and a severe dulling, if not a complete absence of the church's evangelistic witness in the world. So I'm convinced that the best thing we can do for our spiritual health, for your spiritual happiness, is a renewed and revitalized understanding of the church. The message today is about a vision for the church, not necessarily the theology of a church, but let's just take a moment and lay a theology of the church. And I just want to use a quote from J.I. Packer, just a short paragraph that I think encapsulates an understanding, a biblical understanding of the church. And let's let this be our starting point with our text. J.I. Packer writes this, the church of God is a subject that stands at the very heart of the Bible, for the church is the object of the redemption which the Bible proclaims. It was to save the church that the Son of God became man and died. God purchased his church at the cost of Christ's blood. It is through the church that God makes known his redeeming wisdom to the host of heaven. It is within the church that the individual Christian finds the ministries of grace and the means of growth and his primary sphere for service. We cannot properly understand the purpose of God, nor the method of grace, nor the kingdom of Christ, nor the work of the Holy Spirit, nor the meaning of world history without studying the doctrine of the church. I'm not sure if that was in your purview when I asked you, what's your vision for the church? What's your understanding of the church? I'm not sure that you all had it so set in your soul that really, since all of God's redemptive plan is really focused on God saving his people and forming them and gathering them together to be his church. In a sense, it's what the whole Bible is really about. That's the outcome of all that God has done and is doing. So there's a little bit of a theology of the church, but our message today is about a vision for the church. Our text is Luke's first summary statement, and we'll encounter a couple more summary statements that Luke writes in the, in the near future. And it is a summary statement in the sense of Luke lays out a series of events and then sums it up in a sense saying, here's what all these events came to produce. Here's a summary of why all these things took place. And now let me express to you the, the product of what has just taken place. So we've started our study a few weeks ago, starting in Acts chapter 1. And so here we read about Jesus instructing his disciples, then Jesus ascending to heaven, Jesus sending the Holy Spirit to the disciples, the Spirit descending upon and filling those disciples, then Peter preaching, revealing how this was really the capstone of all that Jesus came to do and accomplish for us. And he makes an appeal to the crowd to respond to this with repentance and faith and baptism. And then Luke summarizes for us what this is all led to produce. Let's read our text together. We'll back up to verse 41. I'm in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through the end of the chapter. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, 
And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't know if you knew this, but this particular paragraph in the Bible has a significant, had a significant role in our existence as a church. Way back in the 70s, the 1970s, there was a a group gathered that were a product of the Jesus movement that started in our backyard here but swept across the nation. People in the East Coast and the D.C. area were getting saved. Drug addicts, hippies, you name it, and God was simply saving them, and they began to gather. And a group of them started a parachurch organization and had weekly meetings that were hugely successful. There was well over 2,000 people gathering regularly in these meetings. But the leaders of these meetings had a hunger and thirst for God's word, and they began to read, and they began to study. And the passage that I just read was a significant passage that, in a sense, stopped them in their tracks, where they evaluated and says, what are we doing? What are we building? And weighed that against what is God doing and what is God building? And so they shut down what appeared to be a very successful parachurch ministry and said, we need to give ourselves to planting and building local churches because that's how God furthers his plan. That's how God builds his kingdom, by establishing local churches and encouraging those churches to thrive and grow and be healthy and functioning and for those churches to spread and plant more churches. They perceived that as being God's plan, and so they stopped, shifted gears, and planted a church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Not many years after that, probably less than 10, a team of about 12 people said, we believe we need to go to Los Angeles and plant a church there. So a team came out here in 1984, And on Easter Sunday of 1985 was the inaugural service of this church. We were birthed out of these verses. These have a significant point in our history. What I want to do is take this first uh, verse 42 and break down the four characteristics of the early church. In a sense, I'm at, when I asked you, what is your vision of the church? I want to respond to whatever came into your mind with, now here God is laying out his vision for the church. Here's what the scriptures tell us the church looks like. Four characteristics. It begins by saying they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We're going to look at these four things, but... Before we look at each one, let's just note and grasp the reality of what it means to be devoted to anything. They were devoted to a list of four things, beginning with the apostles' teaching. But to be devoted to something means that they attended to these things earnestly and constantly. It means that they gave themselves to these things in such a way that you could say they gave themselves up for these things. They were willing to pay a price. It could cost them. It did cost them, but they paid it gladly because they were devoted to it. 
Devotion is when you're glad to pay and don't complain about the cost. You're devoted. You give up something of yourself. You invest yourself. You're devoted to it. It's important to know this because if we skip this, well, you know this intuitively. You, maybe you know this experientially. It is very possible to do something but not to be devoted to it. Maybe you have a job. You have a job. You're not devoted to it. That's easy to do. Maybe you have a family. Maybe you're not devoted to your family. It's possible to have something. It's possible to do something and not be devoted to it. You can attend a church and not be devoted to it. You can pray and not be devoted to prayer. But to see a group of people just going through the motions is never a compelling vision and will never make a real impact on anyone. No one would be impressed if they walked into this room and witnessed about 100 people week by week going through the motions. It's when they observe, when it becomes clear that there's a devotion going on underneath the actions, that's when the energy comes. That's when it starts to feel compelling and attractive. In a sense, where's the passion? Where's the devotion? What's, what's driving this? Is there a, is there a, a, a gladness and, a, and a, a freedom in the giving of themselves to something? But simply being devoted to anything, that's not good either. We're called to be devoted to the right things. We could choose to be devoted to other things. Some churches choose other things. We, we could do a, a, a political campaign. We could have a, a, a certain emphasis on homeschooling or politics or this or that. And it would be something that we would be devoted to. And that might be attractive to some people. So not only do we have to be devoted, but we have to be devoted to the right things. And here begins the list of the right things for us to be devoted to first the apostles teaching okay this i don't know if this strikes you as a little bit strange this is a massive group of people about three thousand people that had just witnessed a very supernatural event this is the crowd that was around the upper room when the holy spirit descends and there's tongues of fire appearing on the heads of the people in this upper room and they begin to pray out loud. And they begin to pray in other languages that they didn't previously know, but people in the crowd knew full well. Why do I hear them proclaiming the mighty works of God in my own language? They are standing there witnessing a supernatural phenomenon. And what's the first product listed here? We're hungry for teaching. Teach us more. Tell us more. They go to the apostles with this hunger and thirst. Having received the Holy Spirit both satisfied them and made them hungry at the same time. Have you experienced something like that? Is that something that the Spirit of God has done in your life where you feel almost simultaneously, I feel satisfied and hungry? Spirit has come. They have been made new. They have been converted. They are new people. The whole world looks different to them. And the first thing that comes out is we're hungry. We're hungry to learn. Teach us more of God's word. Now, you realize at this point in history, uh, they, didn't, they didn't have Bibles like we have sitting on our laps. They didn't have, there was no New Testament. It had not been written. And so what they have at that time is an Old Testament and 12 guys. That's their source to be taught. 
That's all their access to the words of God. An Old Testament and 12 men that had been with Jesus, taught by Jesus, appointed by Jesus. If you wanted to know something about Jesus, talk to these 12 guys. They are the ones in the know. They are the ones appointed at this point in history to teach. Out of this context comes our New Testament. These 12 guys, this, this team here, they begin to teach and they begin to write. And so out of that comes our New Testament. They write four gospel accounts, the book of Acts, which we are studying, several epistles, letters written to churches, and the book of Revelation. This, for you and I today, compiles what we could call apostolic teaching. Teachings that came out from the apostles that Jesus appointed. It's this kind of devotion that for us here this afternoon shapes our views on preaching. We satisfied virtually half of our meeting every time we gather for preaching of God's word. You, many of you would be very familiar. There are many different ways of preaching. There are many different styles. There, there are different formats on how to preach a sermon. Some of them are very entertaining. Some of them are very effective. We have some convictions here about preaching. We hold to a view of expository preaching, which means we preach from the text look at a text of Scripture, and we do our best to allow that text of Scripture to say what it has to say. So the sermon is basically trying to communicate to, I've studied this text, and this is what this text is saying. Supposed to, let's say, a topical sermon. I've heard some excellent topical sermons and they certainly may well have their place. But if that was our commitment, inadvertently, what ends up coming across is that, hey, everybody, I have a really great idea. And I happen to find a couple verses that back up my idea that I want to communicate to you. The Bible becomes my helper to communicate to you what I think I want to say what I think you ought to hear, which is quite a bit different than somebody standing up and saying, I only want you to hear what God has said. I want to be used and do my study and make my investment so that you will better understand what God has said in this text, have a grasp of why God said it and what it means for us here today. This devotion to apostolic teaching is what drives us in our theology of preaching, why we preach the way we preach, why we view the Bible the way we view the Bible, because same spirit is in us. And we have in our hearts a devotion to apostolic teaching. It's important. Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship. It's the word in Greek, koinonia. If you've been around church, you've probably heard that word. It means we're together, have things in common, we share with one another. And the wonderful thing about fellowship, maybe not the most common word on the streets today, but in Christianity and biblical terms, a very helpful, very useful word. First John 1, 3 says, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 13, 14 adds fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In other words, as Christians, We've been united, we have communion, we have a closeness, we have a commonality 
with our Trinitarian God. Father, Son, and the Spirit, we have been brought near, brought into. There is a fellowship that has been made available to us in and through what Christ has done so that we could be near God, known to God, known by God, and for us to know God. The saving work of Christ accomplished this for us and put us in fellowship with God. But what this text is talking about builds off of that and talks about now all of us that have been brought in through Christ to have fellowship with God we now have fellowship one with another. In other words, now you and I have something in common. We both share fellowship with God. That creates some commonality between us. In fact, a wonderful commonality, a wonderful fellowship, a wonderful closeness. This is the the greatest way to be near and close to someone. We both share in the grace of God. Oh, you too? Oh, God did that for you as well? Oh, you're forgiven? Oh, you're filled with the Spirit too? You and I are hereby connected. Brothers, sisters, family, we share in that fellowship with one another. The verses that we read continue to expound on this and says that they had all things in common. The word fellowship or koinonia also talks about just giving things to one another. Offerings, money, supply, support, baby clothes, what, what, whatever it is. It's like when we share our possessions when, with one another, that's called koinonia. That's the togetherness that we have. They sold their possession, used the monies to provide for the needs of one another. Now, this was not a mandatory sort of communism, socialism kind of a thing where everybody was required to sell all their possessions. We put all the money in, in one pot and we'll just pay everybody out of the kitty. It was, as, it was completely voluntary. It was completely as needed. It's like when you encountered a need in the body, you would be compelled by the Spirit to do what you could to meet that need. And Luke is saying in his summary of what the people of God looked like, they were doing this like crazy. This was just happening all the time. Needs were coming up. Supplies for needs were happening. I remember when Tammy and I first moved from Michigan here to California, and we joined this church, and many households in the church were like we were, young, raising families on modest incomes, I would say we were poor, but that's not accurate. But maybe by Southern California standards, we were somewhat poor. There was a lot of lag. There were a lot of households here trying to get started uh, on, on modest incomes. There was a lot of needs. And the church was filled with a lot of cribs and baby clothes and bags of diapers and bags of groceries and used cars were just passing around all the time. This was like the life of the church. There was just stuff going from here to there all the time because we had fellowship with one another. That fellowship had a very practical expression. That's what koinonia is called. When you give someone your car or a bag of baby clothes you're done with, that's called koinonia, fellowship. The next thing that they were devoted to was hospitality. To the breaking of bread. Now, there's several commentators that read that phrase and believe that that's referring to the Lord's Supper, meaning they were devoted to practicing the Lord's Supper regularly when they gathered. This certainly could very well be true and would certainly be a good thing to be devoted to. We ought to be devoted to the Lord's Supper, to sharing in communion with one another. It's also possible that verse 42 is actually getting expounded in verses 43 through 47. In other words, he states in one sentence, here's the four things that they were devoted to, and then he breaks it down and begins to explain and expound on some of these things. And later in those verses refers to people being in one another's homes 
having meals together. Now, if you want to argue the point, it means communion or the, it means the, the fact is, biblically speaking, both are relevant, both are true, both should be our, ourselves devoted to practicing all the time. I'm going to take the approach that what he's talking about here is hospitality. That they were in each other's homes having meals together, sharing times of fellowship with one another. There's something so disarming and something so inviting about being in one another's homes and sitting down and sharing a meal together. It is kind of a great leveler, uh, is it not? See, coming into the kingdom means you need the grace of God. And I need the grace of God. The, the, the Bible has us both and all labeled as falling short and having to come humbly and saying, I need grace from above. In other words, there's no point in you and I comparing resumes. There's no point in you and I trying to compare ourselves one with another. We are all categorically in a position of need. Okay? Now, when it comes to eating, here again, there's nobody in the room that does not need to eat. You all need food. We all get hungry. We all have to stop several times throughout the day and refuel and eat. It is kind of a leveling activity. There's no point in you boasting to me how long you can go without food. You still need food. You need to eat. And so just like we come to the throne of grace in need, humbly, all the same as they say the ground is level at the foot of the cross, none of us stands above or beneath the person next to us. We all come with the same need, so we all sit around the same table with the same need. We need to eat. So there's a sort of an equalizing effect that happens when we sit down and have a meal together. It puts us all together on the same plane. We hold a high view of this Sunday meeting. This gathering is very important to us. I hope it is to you as well. But if all you do is come to this Sunday meeting and you never interact with anyone in the fellowship outside of this meeting, you're actually hindering what God is building and what God is doing. So let me just say, if, you're, if your goal is to come here and sit through a meeting and hold everybody at arm's length, not to get too close. If that's, if that's your goal, you're, you're actually at counter purposes to God. You, you are hindering what he's doing. You are an obstacle to what God is building. Being together in our homes, outside the Sunday meeting, beyond the Sunday meeting, is part of the fellowship. It's part of the devotion that we have with one another. Okay? You still with me? If all you want to do is show up for a Sunday meeting, quick in and out, get the meeting, check the box, and leave. Don't know anybody. Don't interact with anybody. Not in a community group. Not fellowshipping. Not practicing hospitality. Not seeing people out outside. There's absolutely nothing compelling about that witness of your life. There's nothing attractive or appealing or effective. Now, not only are you then at cross purposes with what God is building, you're actually hindering your own spiritual growth. And you're hindering your own spiritual happiness. We're going to see at the end, they were glad, generous, and praising God. Well, you can't get there without 
the things they were devoted to. And they were devoted to one another. They were devoted to knowing one another. They were devoted to being with one another. They were devoted for being aware of the needs of one another. They were devoted for doing what they could to provide for the needs of one another. Now you begin to see, I hope, a compelling vision of the church. Now the community of God is beginning to sort of come alive with more than just a Sunday meeting. We do this every time we explain, introduce our ministry of small groups, our community groups. We say there's more to life as a Christian than the Sunday meeting. As important as the Sunday meetings are. We wouldn't want you to just go to a community group and not worship together on Sunday. That would be an equal problem. They were devoted to this. And it showed and it changed them. And they grew and they were happier and they were more generous and God was more glorified. That is what all the things that Christ accomplished produced. Luke summarizes all what Christ did and says this is what it looked like when it got down to the community level of God's people. Last thing, to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. Now, don't, no doubt at the time, in fact, the next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, refers to the hour of prayer. They had a rhythm of prayer that was already in the Jewish culture at the time. I think it was they prayed three times a day, 9 a.m., noon, 3 in the afternoon. Can, can you imagine? You're at work. Oh, Time to go to church to pray. Got to take a break. Got to stop. Got to walk to the temple. And we're going to pray together. Now that's some devotion. That's what they were doing. They're saying they were devoted to this rhythm of prayer in their lives. Now I hope we're all devoted to prayer. If not, you certainly ought to be one thing is clear about this text is that this text is talking about corporate prayer so i hope personally you're praying i hope personally you take some time every day that you're able hopefully most days to spend time in your bible and in prayer but what this text is describing is a corporate gathering a corporate time of people coming together to pray. They made their way to the temple to pray. What a better way of expressing our constant dependence on the Lord. What a, what a better way to express our gratefulness for what God has done, all the things that Christ has accomplished for us, adopting us into his family and living in a daily dependence upon him to meet our needs, to provide the grace day in and day out for us. What better expression could we find than being devoted to prayer? Just so you know, the fourth Fridays, the prayer team meets. Fourth Friday of the month, next one, October 27 at 6.30 in the church office. I'm not sure if you're misunderstanding this concept of the prayer team. There is a small group of people that are committed to be on this team and to committed to be there to pray for this church. But do you realize you are all invited and welcome to come and pray with us? Would it be that the whole church would come and we would gather to pray. Sadly, typically in most churches, the prayer meeting is the least attended meeting ever. <laughs> of all kinds of meetings. I mean, you could have a knitting club and you'll do better than a prayer meeting. Well, what does it say? 
what kind of testimony emerges? What kind of vision of the church begins to come through when it's time to pray and the people of God begin filing in because we love to pray together, because we love what God has done for us, because we love being together, because we love our dependence on the Lord, and we love to talk to him about what we need and what he's done. And love to go before the Lord about what you need and what's going on in your life. And asking God to be present with us when we, when we gather on Sundays and in our community groups. We're praying for God's Spirit to be at work and meeting the needs of people and saving the lost. They were devoted to prayer. Okay. Okay, what is the vision of the church? A gathered group of redeemed people that are devoted to biblical teaching, fellowship with one another, practicing hospitality, and prayer. There's a wonderful vision of a local church. Acts 2.42, well worth memorizing. What's your vision of the church? Acts 2.42, we'll do it. That's a great starting point these are the characteristics of the people of god who have been given the grace of god in christ jesus and with their devotion to these things okay not just because they did these things but because they were devoted to these things because they gave themselves up to these things for these things, in order to practice these things. There was a, a devotion functioning in their hearts. It says they had glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know what is attractive for a local church is for a local church to be filled with people devoted to these things. Favor. People looked at that with a sense of, uh, you got my attention. I'm impressed with that. I might not believe what you believe. Maybe I think it's a bunch of hogwash, but I got to say, you folks certainly are devoted. Devoted to each other. Devoted to the Lord. Devoted to your Bibles. Something about that has got me captivated, interested admiring I'm trying to make the point that not just your spiritual growth but your spiritual happiness is on the other side of this list of things to be devoted to and to whatever extent you would say I'm just not devoted to those things to realize that oh the glad generous praising favor that is described here that's what you're missing that's what you're stopping that's what you're you're selling yourself short of and the sad thing is i think i know most of you well enough that that's precisely what you want in your life oh that that phrase would describe me and us together, glad, generous hearts, praising God, favor with people. So, friends, we have to ask ourselves, do a little self-analysis, little take a look in the mirror, are we devoted to God's word? If you want to talk about the sentiment in your heart, you might be all positive and give yourself a passing grade. Let's just go a step further. What is the practical evidence of your devotion to God's Word? What can be physically observed in your life that reflects and represents a devotion to God's Word? Secondly, are we devoted to one another? Maybe I could just ask you a pointed question. When was the last time you were made aware of someone's need in the church and did something about it? Again, 
We're not grading on personal internal sentiment about how you feel about the disposition of your heart. We're asking the simple question, is this functioning in our lives? I, I say that because we're going to close on this evangelistic nature. So the point is, it needs to be seen. Yeah, it has to be seen. It has to be visible. Can't just, I really feel like I love God's word. I never read it. I never talk about it. I never really think about it. I never study it. But I just really feel like I just love it. Okay? Failing grade. F. Doesn't pass. Are we devoted to hospitality? Please don't begin by asking the question, when's the last time someone invited me over for dinner? Please begin by asking yourself, when's the last time I invited somebody over or out or took some initiative to spend time with somebody? When's the last time I practiced hospitality toward another. Are we devoted to prayer? You can tell a lot about a church by how they pray. Let's ask ourselves, are we devoted to this? Luke is encouraging us about what God does in the context of, devoted, of a devoted church and ends this section by saying something that God did. The Lord added to their number day by day. They didn't add to their number day by day. No, they were devoted to the word, to fellowship, to hospitality, and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. A quote from Carl Truman in his book, Strangers in this strange world, he writes, it might sound trite, but a large part of the church's witness to the world is simply being the church in worship. Paul himself comments that when an unbeliever accidentally turns up at a church service, he should be struck by the otherworldly holiness of what is going on. The most powerful witness to the gospel is the church herself simply going about the witness of worship. We certainly can say, and we will find out as we study further on in the book of Acts, there's more to evangelism than just gathering and being the church. But it is absolutely not less than that. And everything beyond that is so compelling and so attractive We've got to get this right first. So this is the vision that is cast. What is the vision of the church? What ought it to look like? What is in your mind's eye of who we're supposed to be? And Luke gives it to us. We have it in history. We can look back on history and say, this is what it did in Acts chapter 2. All the work of Christ, capstone of sending the Holy Spirit, and out comes a group of people devoted to God's work, to fellowship, to hospitality, to prayer, and boom. And they start coming. And God starts adding. It's compelling. It's attractive. Why? Oh, because the church all had to do all these things. And the preacher got up and preached this message. And now we've got to do this. And now, oh, no, 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 
No, they were devoted and they were happy and they were glad and they were generous. And the effect of the world watching is described as favor, admiration, inquiry, impressed, asking, seeking, knocking, looking. Who are you people? Why, why are you doing this? How did you become like this? These are the things that make the grace of God visible and compelling to the world around us. Worship team, you can come on up. Friends, I firmly believe that one of the greatest weaknesses in the American church is just a lousy ecclesiology, no real sense of vision about what the church is, what the church is supposed to be, what the church looks like. I'm glad we're studying through the book of Acts, and I'm glad we had some time in this paragraph, in this verse 42 in particular, because my hope and my prayer is that every one of us leaves today with a new and improved vision of the local church and with a sense of hope. Oh, if we really give ourselves, if we're really devoted in these ways to these things in the context of this local church, we've got something compelling that God will use and God will add and save and draw and work in powerful ways and we will be glad and we will go from glad to gladder and from generous to more generous and we'll realize this is exactly where we want to be let's stand together father take this encouragement and sow it into our hearts this is a wonderful church we fell in love with this church Oh, some, was it 30 years ago? And these were the things that we saw and experienced from the first Sunday we visited. And so my prayer is, may they not discontinue, but only increase. Stir our hearts with a fresh vision for what the whole Bible is about, what the whole work of Christ was set out to accomplish a gathered people with glad hearts, generous hearts for your glory. Amen.